This is exactly right. That leads to my, my number one goal. The one thing that matters more than anything to me about this book is that food aversion is okay. There, it's, not, it's not a defect. It doesn't make you wrong. It doesn't make you a bad person or a bad child or, you know, anything. It's not, it's not a judgment. It's okay. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you could be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Food Aversion and Picky Eating with Chef Matthew broberg Moffat. Matthew is a classically trained chef, Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators member, former substance abuse counselor, erstwhile computer repair tech, and one-time Buddhist monk. Matthew is the author of their new book, Color, Taste, Texture, Recipes for Picky Eaters, Those with Food Aversion, and Anyone Who's Ever Cringed at Food. Matthew, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Hi, Dr. Dan. Hi, everybody. Hello. (laughs) All right. So, I know we have a lot to talk about in terms of food and everything related um, with all of us picky eaters and those we know. But first, I have to ask about the road to Buddhist monk. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, Well, I had actually adopted Buddhism when I was 12. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And um, I was at a point in my life in my... um, you know, late twenties where I was, you know, looking for something more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and also, uh, I just, I've always wanted to be a, a monk. I, I spent uh, time and, and, uh, at the, uh, Omaha temple, um, z- uh, doing Zazen and stuff like that. Um, and learned about, uh, Zen mountain monastery and, you spent about four months there, so that's that's mm. about. <laughs> um, it was actually it was pretty re- remarkable. Um, I definitely learned more about myself during that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, do your practices stay with you? The practices stay with you to this day. They do. I I'd still practice um, my sitting meditations and um, mindfulness, and and you know being being more cognizant of, of what's going on, um, internally and externally. So (laughs) wonderful. Um, May we all, may we all ascribe to that. (laughs) Yeah. So neurodiversity, I'm wondering about if there's any intersection in hindsight about your path of understanding your own neurodiversity and your quest um, for something more that led you to Buddhism? Um, 
absolutely. Um, I mean, especially as a, as a child, when I first started reading about it, I mean, I was a voracious reader. I, I even when I was very young, I read about, uh, 2000 words a minute. And hmm. so I read literally anything I could, I could get my hands on. <laughs> um, and, uh, I actually, it was the, uh, I, I can't even remember what brought me into it. I think, I think it was AOL was like, mm-hmm. you know, becoming, um, mm-hmm. you know, very popular and uh, had online internet access and unfettered, um, information. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that mm-hmm. just, that was, that was the, the straw that, I don't know, enlighten the camel's back, I suppose. (laughs) Oh, nice. Nice. (laughs) And, you know, all of us as parents now with the opened, the open format of um, the Internet, we all wish our kids were were seeking answers through philosophy. And um, it doesn't always go that way these days with all the stuff that's at everyone's fingertips. Yes. I I mean, we're we're very much, you know, prone to um, pleasure seeking and especially Mm -hmm. when we're younger and. Um, it's much more, you know, common that people go the route of, of, of distraction and, um, and enjoyment rather than, you know, actually seeking, um, the the answers that might pain them, Mm -hmm. (laughs) especially at a younger age. Um, Mm -hmm. but I was, I was a very active in my church community before then, um, by my own, uh, desire i actually would hitch rides with other uh two i was in a baptist church and i went three days a week at my own urging mm-hmm. um <laughs> I, I one of my earliest careers i wanted to be was a, a priest or a, a holy person um i i think that that my my predilection for for trying to learn i mean i, I taught myself to read when i was three mm-hmm. um with a copy of uh, Stephen King's The Eyes of the Dragon, that mm-hmm. was low-hanging fruit. Um, mm-hmm. uh, because my, my mother obviously didn't think she needed to keep it, the book, right. you know, out of reach, which was the second book I read at the age of three, which kind of explained some things. If you <laughs> Did you understand all of that? And, I uh, did. And, and were you afraid? <laughs> I was. I was. Yeah. I understood and I was afraid. Um you know, I, I had uh, a very tumultuous childhood with, um, you know, we were we had a lot of homelessness and mm-hmm. there was a lot of abuse in the home. And so even though it was scary, it wasn't actually as scary as some of the things I was already experiencing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think partly that was the, the desire, you know, at least I knew in a book that it would end. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, not to be too mm. deep there, but yeah. that was <laughs> yeah. Well, and that knowing that at a young age, um, I don't know. I I, I sense I I could see the seeking, the wanting more, the knowledge, and the um, you were ahead of your years in many ways, and I think from what I've learned about you as you got older, you were um trying to reconcile the being ahead in many ways from your peers. And then in other areas where you maybe felt you weren't fitting or keeping up or understanding there. And there were so many of those. I mean, I, I was in, I I had been in um, a relationship of one sort or another uh, since I was 17. Um, So it was kind of, uh, you know, when I was as, as an adult, um, 
it was it was a lot of I knew there were areas where I just I couldn't understand people. I mean, I was I, I went to went back to college and you know got a degree and everything and became a counselor when I was 24. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was in some ways, you know, I was trying to to reconcile my own past with with my family issues with substance abuse and, and such. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like that it was just this constant trying to find out more. I mean, I, I've had, you know, quite a bit of, of chaos. Um, you know, I, I had a very, um, difficult, you know, relationship when I was 17 and, um, you know, when my, what actually, you know, led to my, my son being conceived. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and it was just, you know, it was always wanting more, always wanting to find answers. I couldn't, I couldn't explain, you know, why everything seems so difficult for me other than reading and writing and, and, and talking to people when there wasn't at much at stake personally, mm-hmm. I think was, I could always, you know, charm a person, talk to them, relate to them as long as there wasn't like, it didn't get turned back on me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, as soon as I started to have to convey who I was as a person, it, it faltered because I, I didn't really know who that was. I had, mm-hmm. you know, a complete blank there. I had, you know, my version of myself that I would like to portray to the world, but internally mm-hmm. I, I couldn't reconcile that with who I was and how I experienced it. <laughs> you, you write, you know, you share about your, um, your profile, your neurodiversity and um, your eventual diagnosis. What, what led to that process? Well, um, I went through a divorce in, uh, 2019 and I was homeless and, um, I actually was going through some very difficult times with, with, um, you know, suicidal ideation because I was homeless and it was Mm -hmm. traumatic. I mean, it was the first time since I was a child that I'd experienced it. Mm -hmm. Um, and it brought back a lot of those feelings of, of, of uncertainty and lack of stability and security. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went, I was institutionalized for six weeks. Wow. Um, and it was during that time um, that led to the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, talking to people and there was somebody who was, um, who was autistic on the unit and talking to them. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is like, this is me. I mean, you mm-hmm. like, we, we have, you know, the same idiosyncrasies or flavors of idiosyncrasies. And that mm-hmm. was what I went to the psychiatrist and was like, I, um, I, I think, I think I just learned something big about myself <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and talked to them and went through the diagnosis with um, a psychologist on staff. So, <laughs> you know, that's um, within the field of mental health. Um, there's always this, well, hopefully there is this conversation and this questioning of the, the difference between the importance of labels and the negative aspects of labels labels would stigmatize and other people make them feel less than 
Mm-hmm. And it's always been something that I've wrestled with as a practitioner um, and as a person with my own neurodiversity and family with as, as well. And trying to hold that place and ideally where the label is affirming and opens doors and, and is this place of like, oh, wow, okay, this makes sense. Not, not that there's something wrong with me, even though unfortunately some of these, la- you know, these labels are couched in lots of um, disability, in ter- but rather than an understanding and as we've been moving towards an acceptance of many profiles needed for many things in life. Yeah, um, I I definitely, I, I you know I've been familiar with the you know the discourse on on you know trying a lot of people seeking to um, you know skied away from uh, labels uh, in mm-hmm. terms of mental health and and I yeah you know, I was I was a counselor for a while for about six years and and I you know, I was familiar yes um, and I, I felt then, you know, I was, I was actually much more towards, you know, Hey, you know, labels are, you know, more harmful than helpful in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of a, um, you know, shift in perspective when all of a sudden knowing this thing was like opening a door. And mm-hmm. as you said, you know, finding, finding illumination and fi- finally having context in so many areas of my life that I had felt alone and, and misunderstood or completely not understood whatsoever. I mean, no attempts were made mm-hmm. <laughs> in mm-hmm. many cases. Um, so it was, it was quite, it was quite revelatory and um, you know, it was, it, 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 it gave me a for, form of brilliance into mm-hmm. my mind where, mm-hmm. you know, not, not in terms of giftedness or whatever, in terms of, mm-hmm. of it, it let me see the world differently. It was, it was a re- revelation. Mm-hmm. And understanding that and sounding like embracing that here you go from, I mean, sounds like of the lowest lows of your adulthood, if not even beyond um, to intensive treatment to a new diagnosis, what did this open up for you? Well, I, okay, so I went. I went to culinary school like way back before everything. Yes, um, and uh, and I, I mostly because my grandma taught me how to cook when I was really young. I spent a lot of time with her summers and and, and such. Um, and so I loved cooking. I loved the concept of cooking, at least. I liked the idea of food <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it was great on paper yeah. um <laughs> yeah. but you know in the in the uh early 2000s and there was uh, a lot of uh sauces was kind of a big thing and you had the squeeze bottles full of you yeah. know all you know, aiolis and all this other stuff and they were completely not my thing i i cannot stand them like at mm-hmm. all I, Mm-hmm. They they ruined food for me, and it's like I I kept thinking if I could if I could just push through it, you know I'd be able to expand upon all these food issues that I had because when I was younger before culinary school there were so many things I wouldn't eat I mean far more than I would, um, but after culinary school it opened up the ability for me to cook things the way that I wanted them, 
mm-hmm. and learning, you know, I can make this more crunchy if I do this. Like, you know, if I, if I am really careful about the temperature and, you know, double bread it, I can make it perfect. And, um, so for, for me, it was, I can't make this as a career because I'm not going to be able to walk into a restaurant and say, I can't cook this because I honestly can't taste it without throwing up. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's a good entryway to any new employment or food experience, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I, that was when I went back to college. Um, mm. <laughs> but, um, you pivoted, yes. Yes. <laughs> so I had this, this concept of, um, once I was diagnosed and I started talking and I was talking to this other person who, who had, you know, who was autistic in, in the, um, in the hospital talking about food. And I was like, you know, I never thought about my food issues in a broader sense mm. that, you know, of course I was familiar cause my son, he had, you know, my son is now, he's turning 23. Oh, Wow. Wow, yeah. you look—you don't look old enough. To, I'm, uh, I'm 41, uh, wow. so I had, wow. he was born when I was 18. So, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but I was, you know, very—I um, did my best with him because I had food issues also. But mm-hmm. there was always this difficulty where, you know, but I'll eat this. Why won't you eat this? And I, I didn't—I couldn't get my mind around the fact that, you know, at the time I wasn't thinking in terms of. Oh wait, this is a systemic, large, encompassing issue. Not that just you. Not just you. Not just me. Right. 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 Um, so I, you know, I did my best to accommodate him, but I, I, I admittedly fell short at times. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, but I don't understand. It's just pasta. <laughs> it's just right. like, like plain pasta. It's the simplest thing in the world. It's. <laughs> um, so when I when I started when I learned about you know, my, my own diagnosis and my own perspective and learning more about that and what it means. I was like, you know what? First it actually started with, um, I started writing, I, I got out of the hospital. I was in a, I was living in a homeless shelter and I started writing. Um, and at first I was writing, uh, children's books and I still write children's books and I, I'm mm-hmm. on submission with them. I write picture books and chapter books and I largely write for people like myself. And initially it was a story of my own childhood with homelessness, um, where I started to draw this flamingo and, uh, when living in a shelter for uh, battered women. And I started distributing this newsletter amongst the other kids and I drew this silly flamingo. Still the only thing I know how to draw. <laughs> and um, named him Flannery, oh, and course. and the kids loved it. I mean, it was horrible. It was basically this like ridiculous um, uh, comic, basically of, of Flannery being in difficult situations and making it out unscathed and getting out by the skin of his teeth. Pretty much, you know, projective, hopeful thinking. I think. mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but when I was, you know, in the homeless shelter, and, I, and it was a shelter that had a women's and children's section. So I would see these children playing on the playground. And I was like, you know, I remember that. And I started thinking, no, children don't have books about this. Mm. There's children books with homelessness. And I, I did research and write a bunch. And, and um, you know, there's there's a lot of them out there. A lot of it is transitory or um, with sleep. There's some about sleeping in a car or there's talking about homelessness ch- tangentially. But mm-hmm. there's not a lot from an actual homeless child's perspective. Um, 
and especially not in shelters, which is the most common form of, of homelessness. Right. It's it's the so it's like you know well besides um, doubled up or living more more families to a to a home. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started writing a picture book about it and retelling it, and and I started pitching my books from that shelter bed. Um, joined Twitter for a pitch event for um, uh, DV Pet, which is a, a mm-hmm. pitch, pitching event um, for people with disability or disadvantaged uh, backgrounds, and. I started the submission process and submitting to agents and I started thinking, and I remember it because it was like, it was just like lighter. It was November 11th or let's see. Yeah. Yeah. November 11th, 2020. I, I was thinking about, um, why don't I write a cookbook? <laughs> and the first cookbook I came up with was actually different. I came up with a cookbook that I was calling bone apple tea. Ah, and it was about meme food. Mm, and I still clever. think it's a great cookbook clever. and I, I really yes. want to do it. Yes. I love the, the title. And, and um, um, but I started doing submitting things and, you know, I actually became a, a sensitivity reader um, and have actually done uh, some writing on, you know, very well family and, and um, mm-hmm. started working as a, a writing as business, business writing and business analytics. And mm-hmm. I was doing other things at the time just to, to get my foot in the door and, 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 you know, I got a really quick following. I gathered 10,000 followers on Twitter and a little under a year. Um, and, you know, I was doing my best to get out there. You know, I was working on projects that really mattered. I was, you know, later, like I was a sensitivity reader for, um, um, you know, some pretty big books and it really, it was really special. Mm-hmm. Um, but, when I came up with the idea for color taste texture, I remember thinking this is going to sell like right away. Like there's, there, I'm you, like, knew. you knew, yeah, I knew it. I, I yeah. knew it. I'm like, this is something that's not done. And I did research. There is no books on picky eating or mm-hmm. food aversion, especially, and mm-hmm. especially there were no books written from the perspective of the neurodivergent. Right. Um, right. And everything I found was about, about tricking children or trying to get them to, to, to go outside of that. And I was like, that's not going to work. I know that's not going to work. Right. right. <laughs> is, as a person and as a parent, both yes. does not work. Yes, exactly. Yes. And coming yes. from, you know, you know, from my, my, my degrees in behavioral science, I mean, this is, it's not going to work. You can't right. do this. It's not going to work. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of hopeful thinking in it, but it's just not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I, I started, you know, really focusing on, on what I could do. And it was amazing because the book itself, um, I, I signed with, with a fiction agent. Um, and I got offers for my fiction and my nonfiction in the same week mm. after submitting for, you know, about a year and a couple of months, which is actually pretty, pretty remarkable to get it offers. I, I mean, there, yeah. I know, I don't know a lot of people are familiar with, with the literary world, but getting literary agent is very, um, it's challenging. It's very challenging. Lots of no's. Yes. And getting two. You're right. And within a week for completely different, um, you know, fields. Right. Is like signing with the NFL and the. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, actually, so, that's relevant right now. Sorry, I just have to say because uh, Deion Sanders, who used to play for the Atlanta Braves baseball and the Atlanta Falcons, um, is doing wonders at Colorado University Buffalo. So uh, he's one of the rare birds, like you, who gets signed <laughs> by two different disciplines. <laughs> right. Um, and it, it, the, the journey for Color Taste Textured to having its, um, its day was it went from concept to writing a proposal, which I'd never done before because um, it's different than, than submitting a query for fiction where you submit the whole work, you know, rather than just an outline. This is what I want the work to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, it went from proposal to submitting to an agent to signing with an agent, fixing that proposal for uh, submission to getting an offer within about six months. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, which That's is fast. Ri- ridiculously fast mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for the, for um, publishing and not only just from any place, but literally my dream publisher, Avery um, is, has a lot of other neurodivergent authors. They have, um, you know, Steve Silberman who wrote Neurotribes is an author mm-hmm. there. I mean, yeah. it was like, yes. I've actually, you know, gotten to know him and, and he's been oh, supportive wow. of, of promoting wow. my work. Um, and so it's like, you know, really it was, it was the most ideal of scenarios. <laughs> did your book do like when you had the idea, did it all just roll out for you or was it the concept and then it just went from there? It was all at once. Yeah. I, I had everything in my mind, what I knew the book would to be the moment that I came up with it. Hmm. I, and I, I even, I have a, a the post, I did a, a proposal on Twitter the app formerly known as Twitter, I suppose. Um, On November 11th, I put out a proposal for it. I'm like, I'm querying color, taste, texture. I I called it, you know, recipes for, um, uh, was it autistic and picky Mm -hmm. eaters? I can't remember Mm -hmm. exactly how I worded the the tagline to it at the time, which is the only thing that changed of the title. Oh, and I had and in the title, color, taste, and texture Mm. initially. Right. Now it's just color, taste, texture. Right, kind of following on you, know, acid, fat, yeah. heat, and you know mm-hmm. um, some of the other baking or cookbook trends. Um, and so you know, it was it was it was remarkable. And I remember thinking because I'm sitting there, and um, it was there's actually a moment of of sadness at first because I'm like, I know this book is going to be so helpful, and I know it's going to be important. I know people are going to love it. But I'd started as a as a kid writer, mm. and I was like, people are like. Like I'm gonna, this is gonna sell, and then I'm only gonna be known as the guy who wrote color texture. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know what? That's actually fine. The more I thought, sat with it, and was like, you know, this is mm-hmm. actually a really impactful book. And when I pitched it, and I started hearing people back, like um, potential readers, um, people who could use it, saying, "This is like crying. Like this is a godsend. This is what I've needed my whole life." And I started sitting with that and and realizing the importance of it, the significance of, of what I was mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. And mm. that's when it started to be less important that, you know, I may not be known for, mm-hmm. you know, Alan and Flannery the Flamingo before. <laughs> before or this just might help uh, the Flamingo uh, Flannery get out there even more. You know how these things become, uh, they work off of each other. That's the hope. Um, yes. yes. But it's, you know, it was amazing. Um, I actually, you know, the cookbook was just, 
it, the only, the initially I had it written as a much larger work and it was mm-hmm. meant to be a much more comprehensive, um, uh, text with, you know, a structured formalized approach towards if a child or somebody does want to try new foods, here's how you could do it. Mm-hmm. And I do have that for a follow up for the book, for the next book that I want to, nice. will be proposing. Nice. Nice. And, and a hundred more recipes. Um, right. Excellent. And it's called the explorers, uh, table plate. So I think it's, I think it'll be fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it uses a branching table of, you know, if you're fruit, if you like this, here are three things similar in texture, flavor, or appearance that you could try along with it. And yeah, it's, and, uh, I, I, I see and sense your, um, your behavior, your behaviorism, behavior, human behavior analysis coming in because this does become, it can become very clinical. Uh, That's not the right word, but right. It's like you have to understand human behavior and the behavior of your child to really set this up for success. And for example, um, what was new to me was about the impact of actual color. I mean, I knew about textures, and I, of course, I knew about uh, taste, but that the taste and the texture could be right, but if the color of the food is wrong, that can be completely sensory overwhelming, and then you would have avoidance. Exactly. Um, and, you know, and there's other environmental factors that can play a part, and you know, it couldn't fit the whole time, ti- you know, everything that's in the book in the title, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. It can be color, taste, texture, plating environment <laughs> yeah, right, right. the chapters though the chapters hit it yes, everyone when chapters. you get into the book it's all there right yes yeah. um and it was and it was very much a um for me i mean beige foods are like my my it thing mm-hmm. that's where that's where i feel comfort um being a midwest child i think that was you know yellow and beige are my are my babies they're like mm-hmm. oh this is perfect it's you know it's the color of the sun. <laughs> um, so when, you know, I, I have um, the, the length of the book was dictated by the publisher who had, you know, it has to be of a size. The mm-hmm. book has to basically, you know, um, be relatively the same size of other trade paperbacks that they publish. Mm-hmm. And so we went from being a, um, you know, 80,000 to 90,000 word project was they're like, we really needed to be around 50,000, 40,000. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, okay. Right. Okay. So I had already written most of the book. <laughs> and most of the second book, it turns out. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. And they're like, Oh, and we also it has to be like, you know, between 30 and 40 pictures. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, well this was meant to be like a step-by-step, like, okay, here's how to cut an onion so that yes. you could cook it, so that the texture is innocuous. But right. suddenly, I couldn't have those process shots or right. the more granular stuff. Right. So I had to restructure essentially the whole thing. It became an entirely mm-hmm. different project. But I actually, I think it really went well because the book is a lot more accessible at this point.
you just helped me with the word I was looking for before. It wasn't clinical as much as technical. So I could see how you would be writing more of a technical cookbook because all of these things really, really matter. And when I hold this book, everyone, which you have to check out, I mean, it's the texture of the book is just feels so good. The pictures are, you want to eat the pictures. Um, they're <laughs> so, it's everything looks so good. And yet it is very, it's, you are in this book, right? So you write about your experiences, prefaces, when you talk about the different, um, the environment, you talk about taste, you talk about texture, you talk about color, and it is completely user-friendly and approachable, right? It's not for someone to say, oh, wow, this is overwhelming. My experience was it just invites you in and makes you say like, oh, I could do this. And, right. and this, this makes a lot of sense. I mean, also, we have had three picky eaters, um, and yes, this would have been really, really helpful, um, not only to try these things out, but then to include the kids on making these and, and experimenting with you of how does this look? How does this taste? How does this feel to have a vocabulary to describe the no, right? Or just right. The, the shrug or the just turn around and walk away ex response. Right. You know, I had the, um, to, to give an idea of just how accessible it is at this point, I had the most remarkable, um, I cried, um, you know, pr promotion for it from uh, a follower on Twitter whose um, daughter, who is just starting kindergarten, spent 15 minutes reading the book and on the first day of class included color, taste, texture in their mm. reading diary. Oh, wow. Wow. And talking about how, you know, this is, I, this includes ways that maybe foods I haven't liked before I can like. Mm. Mm. And, and I cried because like, yeah. it was just a moment of, you know, it was really um, a connection between, you know, my kid lit world. Right. And, and my, yes. And my cookbook world is like, and I, I really, I ideally, I wanted to make it as something that children could read with, with their parents or, you know, that could be read along with and that could be followed. And, and I, so I tried to make it as, as accessible to all ages, not just in terms of content and what it could do, mm -hmm. but in terms of could be read by. Um, yes. And it's, so it is more than a cookbook. It is also education, right? It's education to the parent. It's education to the child who learns about themselves um, through you as now a world famous chef and author, right? When you have these, you have these people who have done something that one looks up to, it's inspiration, right? It, yeah. it, it expands other people's ideas about themselves. Like, right, if he could do that, and I, I can do this, I can, I can try this, right. I can, I can have some control over my environment, like I communicate what I like and don't like. And as you write, and your experience, and so many others. When there's not a vocabulary, it's you're just seen as like obstinate, lazy, difficult. Like even right, even you with your son, like this is pasta. Like come on, right. how like how hard could this be? But it, it really <laughs> is food aversion and sensory issues are really the um, they're the invisible like the invisible culprit to so much of this behavior that then becomes conflict around food and the, the table. And, and, you know, that, that was, that leads to my, my number one goal. The one thing that matters more than anything to me about this book is that food aversion is okay. 
Right. There, it's not. It's not a defect. It doesn't make you wrong. It doesn't make you a bad person or a bad child or you know anything. It's not. It's not a judgment. It's okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is there's a there's a there's a biological a neurological component to it, and I, I try to describe that. And you know, there's if what you're eating, your brain is telling you is dangerous or wrong. You, I mean, a lot of the the um, before you know culinary standards became practice and food safety became there was there was you know it was a lot of trial and error and sometimes if you bite into something and you're expecting it to be something and it's not your brain is yelling at you at that point saying not safe not safe and for people with with sensory issues or um, people who are autistic or, or, or have, have any kind of sensitivities with this, that signal is a lot louder mm-hmm. and you can't be blocked out. You can't, it's, it's much more difficult to stop it. You can't stop that, that constant um, dialogue between what you're experiencing and what you think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so your food becomes a threat. And here you have, you know, a loved one who's who's trying to get you to eat, you know, and they may have the best of intentions, but they're telling you to ignore what your brain is telling you could potentially be dangerous to you. Right. Right. Without having that language to explain it. <laughs> right. And this is where it turns into behavior with the literally the fight and flight response happens right. at the table <laughs> during eating time. With many kids, and again, yeah. it's just seen as um, disobedience, um, right. oppositional behavior, and it really comes from a place of anxiety and a, a really primitive survival response. Right, um, and you know, and honoring that, and um, mm-hmm. I've had people, you know, I, in the book I include a, a profile where you can list a child or a person's, um, and I say person, child, children, or people also. I mean, yes. an adult. <laughs> Yes. Where you can list a person's safe foods and, and you know, off-limit foods and, and all these things. And um, and I've had people ask me before, like, what do we do if I send this to grandma mm-hmm. and they're cooking for them? And they're, what if they don't honor that? Right. I'm like, well, far, you know, of course, uh, we can't tell our grandparents how to treat our children. Right. <laughs> it won't go well. Uh, usually there, there's always going to be some form of conflict there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the important thing is if you develop this list with your child and they know that you have their agency at heart, that you mm-hmm. actually are doing their best to honor and respect their requests and wishes, mm-hmm. that even if grandma or aunt or an uncle or something else isn't necessarily as receptive to preparing for that, that child knows they have a safe place to fall. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. that's just mm-hmm. out there at home. It's okay. You're safe. I, you know, you can. I respect your desires. I respect your needs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that makes a lot of difference. Huge, huge. Yeah. Because accept as I'm hearing you, what I'm thinking is acceptance with a big A. It leads to empowerment. Right. If I feel accepted, I feel more empowered to make choices, to communicate my choices, knowing that in this environment, if I don't have much choice, like you're saying, I know at home 
I have my safe place. I just have to deal with this situation. Right. Um, as opposed to everything feeling threatening and feeling misunderstood. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was, uh, I also did my best to, you know, accommodate all, all kinds of people. I include a non-speaking feedback template. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a non-speaking child or person that you're, you're, that you're preparing food for and there's something about it that doesn't sit well with them, they can show you <laughs> what it is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's this, it's the texture. And then, you know, you can, you can work through it and communicate, you know, in their way um, to find out exactly how you can make it better for them. Um, there, there's a ton of, um, well, it's not only information, but like you said, this, like a, a worksheet or a template and, um, everything is laid out. There's so many visuals and, um, broken down by, is this easy? You know, is this, is this beginners, you know, and right. a vast majority of the meals are for all of us one one type chefs, right? Like they're right. really set up for, um, to be accessible to everyone to cook. Right. It was really important to me that this not be like, I'm not trying to show off. I'm not trying to, mm-hmm. you know, I'm trying to, the recipes that are included in the book are largely things I eat. There's only one recipe in there I won't eat, but <laughs> which, which one you, which one is that one? It's the, the vegan stuffed focaccia. Okay. Cause I don't like mushrooms. Okay. Fair. Fair. Okay. Um, but I, I know that the recipe is good because I made it and everybody who had it was funny because I remember at the time I was preparing it and I was like, this is gonna be really popular. Like this is a really good recipe. I know it's a good recipe, and I just know that people are gonna love it and it's gonna be with me forever. And it's like the one thing I won't eat. And that's actually, it, it pretty much turned out that way. We had um, everybody on on set who had, it was like, this is delicious. This is so good. Mm-hmm. I'm like, of course. Yes. <laughs> and it was. You just need to like mushrooms to enjoy it. That's just, right. that's just the one caveat. You can't have every something for everyone or right. everything is not for everyone. There is something for everyone. Right. And I tried to, you know, include gluten-free recipes and, um, you know, vegan and most of the ve- most of the recipes, at least two thirds, are are either vegetarian or can be altered for a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I tried to include all of the favorites that you would have, but also make it accessible to as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, had some people be like, "Well, I wish it was veg- all vegetarian or all vegan." I'm like, "Well, not all children are vegan or vegetarian." And when you're already dealing with a limited palate of what someone right, can eat, right can't can't restrict that further <laughs> oh but i'm sensing further books that are targeted towards different types of eat recipes towards different types of eaters you know like yes. at that's this is just the beginning this is uh, like I, a chicken book for the soul like this is just the beginning of um tasting for the sensitive palate i i really hope so and i you know i've got two proposals that i'm working on for follow-up one is um, special interest kitchen, mm-hmm. which has 11 core multi-port recipes, like what's like a eggs Benedict, which, you know, has, you know, the, the biscuits, poached eggs, hollandaise sauce, mm-hmm. things like yes, that. Yes, I do. And, um, and it goes into also explaining the science of why you do what you do. Mm. And it goes through, uh, 12 different recipes that could teach nearly every, necessary culinary technique in the kitchen 
So, you know, steaming, braising, you know, all these different things. All, and so that these these recipes that are not included in color taste section, I don't want to have repeats. Mm. Um, they each not only teach the science, the whys, the hows, but it also teaches and it's accessible to children. So t- children can learn how to cook. I just had a I just had a, a vision of um you opening the door for a whole new generation of food averse chefs, right? Like you would never think, right? Like when it's something that you just don't like that you would actually lean into that and further develop and expand the discipline. So cool. I'm thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Because that is that is the hope. That is the dream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, your mission, which you have succeeded, I just want to say that for everyone as we wind down here, your mission, as you state, is to encourage acceptance of food aversion, remove the stress around the dinner table, and make eating as much of a joyful and enjoyable experience as possible. And we all know the dinner table any table, but often we think about the dinner table and the fa- the family dinners, this, this ideal of getting together and gathering at least a few times a week. It is the place of special connection, and it is also the space of potential tremendous conflict for a variety of reasons right. when you're raising a family. So to take food out, to, to possibly take the stress of food out of that equation is huge. Thank you. Uh, I've... It's, you know, I, I'm very proud of the book and um, I really hope that it gets in as many hands of the people who need it. So Yes, yes. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're helping. We're going to help here, Matthew. Yay. Okay, so it's time for the parent footprint moment question. Here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents. And that new awareness had a positive impact on your life your child, and or those you love? Um, I think it definitely ties back to when I was diagnosed um, because it, it put my experiences both as a child and as a parent into stark contrast. Mm-hmm. I mean, it made, it made everything brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it was why I included in the acknowledgments to my son, Ian. Yes. You know, that I'm sorry he wasn't more understanding about the watermelon because he, he he can't stand watermelon and it's like my favorite fruit. So I was, <laughs> um, I really wish, you know, I, I in some ways I wish that I had known sooner because mm-hmm. I feel like I could have been a better parent in the, mm-hmm. that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can't change the past. We can only, you know, acknowledge it and, and try to move forward. Yes. Um, and I feel that that revelation um as myself as autistic was what led me to become hopefully a better parent, at least a more, a more understanding one. Um, even though his, his differences or, or, you know, neurotype are not the same as my own. Mm-hmm. Um, it helped me, <laughs> sorry, it helped me understand um, myself as a parent. Yeah. Why was this my approach? Why mm-hmm. you know, was this difficult for me or, um, how, how could, how could have I done differently, but how can I make amends now as right. a person seeking to, to say, look, I understand now I get it. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. was in the wrong mm-hmm. and I should have acknowledged 
that your differences and, and how you want different things and everything, you know, is completely acceptable and okay and beautiful even because, you know, we're different people and that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't want to, we don't want to churn out carbon copies of ourselves. Um, no. And it doesn't work even if you try. Exactly. Um, and so that was definitely my, mm-hmm. my moment. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you for sharing. I, um, I also hear in your response um, hints of your past substance abuse counseling experience. And of course, as a Buddhist practitioner is for all of us to remember that the past is the past and it is important to acknowledge um, and, and, and honor the past. But we need to be present focused with life now because living in that past is often just painful and takes us away from, from our, our, our present and, yeah. and, and therefore our future that's yet to come. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, going into the future, um, aware and, and accepting and, mm-hmm. and not just accepting, but appreciating the differences and the beauty. And that's, that's what makes life better for everyone. Well, nothing more can be said better so that we have to, we have to, we have to end on that. Um, that's beautiful, Matthew. Please, um, congratulations again. Congratulations on this beautiful book and um, the success. And for those listening, we get these pings every once in a while, and we got to listen to them. You got this. You got this. This thing came to you, and it came strong, and you knew you just had to move forward with it. And uh, again inspiration for all of us when you have these ideas and something seems important trust yourself trust your intuition trust your instincts tell everyone where they can get this life-changing book um color taste texture is available in in all booksellers barnes and noble um you know for those across the pond blackwells you know there's uh, amazon it's it's everywhere out there and and i really hope that you you know Give it a chance because, you know, I think it can make a difference. So thank you. Yes. Yes. And uh, we, I hope we can do this again with the next, the next iteration and continue the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone. I know you are thinking of people that need to listen to this conversation. Please share this with them. Please invite them into our amazing community. We appreciate your five-star reviews. They really, really matter and make a difference. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com.
Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.